Everybody, my name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackball. Okay, I, I, I'm trying to figure out the best way to do this intro because there's so many things going through my head right now because of the deep dive that I just did on my guest today. Uh, but I will go with my gut instinct, which is wanted to go uh, with yesterday. This man's career, we're going to talk about is the, the, the bookends of his career. Well, one bookend is still so at least where it started from to where he is now and how remarkable of a career that this person has had. My um, motivation to contact him to be a guest on the show was because I, I heard the song that I know him by and I was immediately launched back to when I was in grade five and I was trying to get over a girl. And I, and I heard this song on the Family Ties show and I was 10 years old and I had to leave the room so I wouldn't ball in front of my and there's something magical about a songwriter who can find a way to construct a song so perfectly that it completely triggers your emotional sensors and your synapses inside your brain or your serotonin level, whatever it does, that will cause you, that will evoke an emotion out of you that you weren't expecting. And once I did the deep dive on, on this person, I realized that the talent that, that he has are so um, renaissance and that it's no wonder that he was able to do that. But for me to be able to come full circle in my life and talk to him when he made me cry like 30 something years ago is just an amazing um, kind of bit of nostalgia and it's trippy to be honest with you for me. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you my guest today and his name is Billy Vera. Billy, how are you, sir? I'm great. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us today. I have to tell you, uh, there is a, a rewarding um, feeling that I have when I do a deep dive on a guest, and I am just completely floored at how small the, um, the, the, the initial introduction that I just gave, how small that song really kind of is in the grand scheme of things of Billy Vera. And, and it's not like you're, you know, in the industry itself, I've learned that everybody who's in the industry considers you a legend. But in one of your, in the documentary based on your book, I was listening to people talk about how you're the famous guy who's ever heard of. <laughs> is that still kind of the moniker that you feel you have and to bother you at all? That was, uh, that was the director's idea. He, you know, he and I had known each other for quite a while. Alan Swire is his name. And, uh, and uh, he, said, he said, you know, everybody I talk to he just raves about you. People that are big deal in the in the business and outside of the business. And and uh, but but well, what happens is, I my record my hit at this moment, the great weakness of that song that I realized from day one was the title. There was no title to the song. Oh, and I and I didn't know what to call it until finally my then manager uh 
just said, well, just call it at this moment. That 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 that's that's that shows up in every throughout the song, because there was it was no hook, and I didn't think the song was commercial. You know, that shows I was surprised you that I it thought. wasn't called "You Just Don't Love Me" or something like that. Well, you he, know, like I was people it, come up to me. Oh, I love your song. Uh, you, you just don't love me no more. I love your song. Uh, if I could just hold you again, they come up with all these lines, and nobody knows the title. You know, it, 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 it's, and what, another thing I didn't realize until about several years ago on Facebook, a woman contacted me. She said, you know, my grandfather's standard famous song uh, has something in common with your song. I said, what's that? And what's the song? She, she said, well, my grandfather wrote Moonlight in Vermont. Oh. Like one of the great songs of all time. Yeah. And she says, neither of your songs has a rhyme in it. You know, songs usually rhyme. And I didn't even rec realize that. And this was like 30 years after I wrote the song. I didn't even know that there was no rhyme in it myself. And I said, yeah. wow. So it, it, it's, it's, and I th it made me think. I said, well, I guess it's, it's because it's really more of a conversation. And that also leads us to why so many people attempt to sing the song. And they mess it up because they, it makes them feel emotional just as it did you as a 10 year old boy. But they, it makes them over emotionalize the song. It makes them try to sing it over the top and get all melodramatic. There's and only that's one the, rhyme in the song. Which is? It's, um, did you think, do you, did you think I would curse you or say things to hurt you? Right. That's an, inter, an internal rhyme. That's right. Yeah. yeah, but I'm a rapper, so I know about these rhyming things, right? Yeah, yeah. Jerry Jerry Lieber had told of the great Lieber and Stoller. You know who they are, of course. They wrote Hound Dog and That's right. Stand by Me and uh, Is That All There Is? All these great songs of the rock and roll era. Anyway, Jerry was one of the great lyricists of all time, and he he taught me about internal rhymes, which is something I may have done by accident from time to time, but didn't realize it myself. Um, let me just ask you, if you have uh, your phone on or any other window on, um, can you close it? Because we're getting weird things with your audio when you talk. So I don't know if that's just random, but it wasn't well, doing that before it went on air. So if you have your cell phone close to you, turn it off. It's the other side of the room, but I'll put it in the kitchen. Okay, just in case. I'm not really sure what this, but um, in either... In any event, um, I'll take it. I really care <laughs> at this point. Um, one thing, and we'll wait for Billy to get back to his chair there. Um, one thing that I didn't know, I, and funny, when we were talking on the phone earlier, I was calling you Eminem. <laughs> and the reason why, I'm going to play this quickly, and then when I come back, we'll talk about it a little bit. But it's because okay. of this. You've got your world. And I've got mine And it's a shame Two grown-up worlds That will never Be the same Why can't we be Children 
across the meadow. That is you and Judy Clay doing Storybook Children. And it was 1967 when you first started performing with her live. And you guys were the first interracial like duet ever. And you played like the Apollo and stuff. That is crazy to me. And, and I want to know what it was like. I, I, I want to know, first of all, what it was like to feel accepted, um, especially by black audiences. And also, what was the blowback like? Because I'm sure there was some ignorant pushback when you were doing that stuff back then. Well, um, the blowback was minimal. Um, and it came from uh, television, uh, mainly network television. They didn't feel that their sponsors would would be uh, would sell a lot of, you know, face cream or soap or whatever with uh, the two of us on there but bear in mind we played the apollo for the first time in may of 1968 which was one month after martin luther king was killed oh wow and they didn't know our picture had not been out yet and the record was already a hit in the black uh, market place uh so i guess the assumption was that we were both black so I, the way the Apollo worked in those days, it was a seven-day-a-week gig and uh, five shows a day. So you would, you would come up the, the last night after the last show of the previous week, and you would rehearse with the house band. And uh, so I show up, and the stage manager was a guy named uh, Honey Coles of the famous tap dance team Coles and Atkins. And he said, oh... He looked at me, he said, you know, Harlem hasn't seen you yet. I said, uh-uh. Now, I, I had worked with a lot of black acts. I had, had uh, written a, a song by Barbara Lewis, a black act, on Atlantic Records. You, know, you, so wrote, I, you wrote songs for Fats Domino and the Shirelles as well, right? Yeah, Ricky Nelson, back in those days. Mm-hmm. And then later, you know, some more contemporary artists, Lou Rawls and people like that. Anyway... So he said, uh, you know, I got an idea. He said, Judy, you enter from stage right, and Billy, you enter from stage left. Let her take three steps out from the wings before you make your entrance and watch what happens. Oh, wow. So they're playing our, what they call chase music, which means the music that they play to bring you on. Yeah. I count one, two, three, enter. And I hear 1,500 people gasp. <laughs> and I, and I, I hear people out there going, "That's him! That's him!" And they had bought the record, you know. Yeah. And he, he he had put us on second, which was a lousy spot in the show. You know, the opening act is usually a very uh, visual, uh, choreographed flash act, mm. and the second act is usually somebody new or somebody that's not one of the great act, and they go better, better, better star. And each act does about three songs. 12, 13 minutes, and then the star does maybe 20, 25 minutes. So we went over great. They, we killed him. So after the first show, he comes up to our dressing room and he says, uh, he says, well, I'm going to change up the show. I'm going to put you on right before the star. He says, because ain't nobody going to follow you too. And that became our spot. So we, we went over great. Uh, the Apollo audience is notoriously... Uh, uh, sophisticated. 
Yeah, they were quite turning. Yeah, they've seen the best. Mm-hmm. You know, they've seen everybody from Billy Holiday to Ray Charles. You know, and uh, and 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 they let you know if they don't like you and if they do like you. And they loved us. So we we were we were asked to come back again, and uh, and, and we were very popular. Now the the you asked about blowback. It, it was subtle. You know, we we lived in liberal New York, and. Uh, the liberal audience was not as liberal as they like to think they are. Hmm. You know, uh, they, when it came to television, we didn't get on television. I think we did one, one TV show uh, in Detroit. Um, there was a disc jockey named Robin Seymour who put us on television. But we, in fact, we even, we even taped uh, our song on a, on a local New York show. And uh, I guess they hadn't seen us either, and they, they never aired the show. Wow. So that, but that was really, you know, there was no real neg- negativity. Our, our audience, don't forget, that was the hippie period. So we really didn't appeal to them. Our music didn't appeal to them, the hippies. Was there, any, was there anything that you learned um, being, and I, I'm, I'll preface this so that you understand sort of what I mean, because I don't want it to sound ridiculous, but um, being really interested and being a part of the hip hop scene in Toronto gave me a better appreciation for black culture. I was wondering if you had a similar experience uh, being sort of engrossed uh, or, or, you know, surrounded by amazing black artists. Was there um, sort of an education for you of, of, of just sort of being around black culture and, and, and what it started to mean to you? Well, I had, I had done that before. You know, we, my little band was a, was a house band at a, one of the better nightclubs in the, in the suburban part of New York. And every weekend we would have hit record acts. And we would do two dance sets and then we'd, we'd back up. If, if they didn't bring their own band, or their, we, would, we would back up the, the hit record acts. And they were 99% black. So I, I was really engrossed in, in black show business. Uh, prior to having a hit record myself or ourselves, in that case, the case may be, and I, you know, be, had been befriended by all these guys because they they dug what we were doing, you know, uh, and they were they, there was a mutual respect, and I remember, you know, uh, some of the acts would say to me. Oh man, the first time I ever played the Apollo, man, I was scared. I threw up before I went on stage, you know, because they were really afraid of being, you know, ridiculed. And uh, as it turned out, if, if they were good, they didn't. You know, if they were mediocre, the people yawned. Yeah. If, if they sucked, people booed them, you know. And if they were great, they let you know. And they used to have amateur night once a week, every Wednesday. So I, I would stay, and I had been a, a customer at the Apollo. You know, I was there when James Brown made that famous Live at the Apollo album. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's the most sampled um, set of all time. And it, it was the greatest show I've ever seen to this day in my life. Wow. Uh, it was just remarkable. My guitar player and I went down. There were the only white people in the audience, you know. <laughs> and it was a rainy night. And people were very nice to us. One couple, one nice couple loaned us one of their umbrellas while we were waiting on the line, you know. Yeah, and it was it was great. Uh, so I was I was already 
fairly deep into black show business. Before that, I, I, I also had married a, a, an older black woman of 22, you know, okay. <laughs> a cradle robber. I yeah. was 21. And, uh, and so, you know, I was, I was involved in the, living in the community uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And after a while, you know, they, I think they, they kind of looked upon me as a light-skinned black guy. You yeah. know? I mean, just like a piece of the furniture. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 you know, you could see slowly as people began to accept you. And I think this is true anywhere you go where there um, is a, a, a community of any kind. You know, whether you, you, you're, you're a non-Italian going into an Italian neighborhood. You know, you're Italian. Yeah. Uh, my, in fact, my, my longtime bass player's name was Fiore. Chuck, Chuck Fiore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was Fiore. looking at that. I was like, I wonder. Because there's yeah. some, some, some D. Fiore's dropped the D.I. when they got here. So I, I assume that uh, his grandfather or somebody was an immigrant from... I forget where he said he was, where they were from. Probably from the province of Abruzzi. Abruzzi, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of is in show business. Dean Martin, Perry, oh, really? Perry Como, Michael Bublé, uh, Madonna. Wow, I didn't. Know I mean, that. they weren't from there, but they're they're. That's like me. Yeah, I was born in Montreal, but my uh, my grandparents were both born in in Abruzzi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Um, so. I was watching some interviews with you and I was um, watching other musicians talk about you. And it's interesting because, so you, 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 you wrote some, um, you wrote uh, for, for like the, the, the fat, the, sorry, excuse me. You wrote for Fats Dominoes and for the Shirelles and for other people. You did your thing with Judy. And then you kind of describe your, your, your career in the seventies as like, like going through a black. Hole. I know that that was a laugh line for one of the, times that you were introing at this moment uh, it was a live performance i think at the roxy i, I can't remember but i think that's <laughs> where it was i'm wondering though what it was really like like forget the album charts and forget like writing hits and all that kind of stuff was there were, were you happy in this from a personal standpoint and were you being artistic and just trying new things or was it like a frustrating road where nothing was working i'm just sort of curious of what it was really like because it sounds bad when you say it like that, but then at the same time, the reality of it might not have been. You know how they say that the journey sometimes is so worth it, even if there isn't success until the end of it, right? Like, well, you know, the culture changed radically in, in around 1968, 69. Um, the music changed. I mean, just the entire culture changed, and so I was what was known in the in the day as a blue-eyed soul singer, lousy description but that's what they called me and that went out of style went out of fashion and and i'm trying i I spent most of the 70s trying to figure out where can i fit how can i fit into show business and make a living for myself uh you know i couldn't be a hard rocker that's that wasn't me i couldn't be a disco guy that wasn't me i couldn't be a wimpy singer songwriter you know uh I, i just couldn't figure out where where i could go uh, and I tried, you know, t- to do my own who I was and then maybe adapt that to a, a bit to see if, if I could bring in elements of other things, but not, not so much as to prostitute myself either. Uh, and it didn't work. 
you know, I, 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 Steve Cropper, you know who he is, right? Not offhand, no. I'm sorry. He <laughs> was that the, game. <laughs> Steve was from Stax Volt. Uh, he he produced Otis Redding and okay, you know all that all that stuff in Memphis. And anyway, he brought me to Memphis to to make a, a record that that never came out. And uh, that was in the mid '70s, and I and I, I ended up doing survival gigs. You know, I I I put together a little band to play locally in the New York, Connecticut, New Jersey area. Um, I, I took gigs. There was a big oldies, oldies revival in the New York area in the early seventies. So because I had known all these acts back before we had our hits, uh, I, I, I was, I had befriended all these people and they, they needed, uh, a conductor, a guitar player who could conduct house bands whenever they played at clubs or places. And that, well, you want to talk about a difficult job. Because these club bands usually stink, you know, and they can't read music, and they didn't really know the oldies songs that the, the people were playing. I played for everybody from Ronnie Spector to Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, the Drifters, the Coasters, all these people. And, uh, you know, I'm a good conductor, and, and I, I somehow managed to make it sound like music wow. behind these people. And, and, I, and so I managed to survive. But I didn't have a hit record for nine years, man. Yeah, you climbed out of the 70s in 1979, and you wrote um, a hit for Dolly Parton uh, called I Really Got the Feeling. Correct. It became, it became a number one hit, and that revitalized you, right? And that re I heard you talk about how it um, – I mean, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember the exact quote, but basically when you write a song for other people, sometimes you don't even know who you're writing it for and sometimes when you do you feel like you're climbing inside them and you feel like like you're you're kind of riding out their soul with your pen and it almost writes itself is that am i getting that correct well you 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 know i had been a professional songwriter uh, mm. a staff songwriter for publishing companies in the 60s and so what what would happen your your boss would knock on your door you know they, they'd stick you in a little room and with a little piano and uh, hey, uh, the Shirelles are recording next week. Write something for them. Or Tony Bennett's recording. So you would listen to their records and you would determine uh, what their vocal range is. You know, I mean, uh, Shirley from the Shirelles has a range of about six notes. Patti LaBelle has, a, has about three times the number of notes for a range. So you, you would take that into consideration. What is the subject matter that they tend to write about? If it's a female singer, you want to write from a female point of view, uh, which was probably more important then than now uh, in the contemporary world. And so you, you would write, like in the case of I Really Got the Feeling, a friend of mine got a gig producing Nancy Sinatra. Hmm. And, and so I was at his house one day. He said, listen, I got to go to the beauty parlor and pick up my wife. Would you start something for Nancy and we'll finish it when I get back? So I said, what the heck do I write for Nancy? He said, oh, she has this famous father. So I got a line there. Well, I love my daddy, but it really don't matter what my daddy might say, thinking about Frank, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I finished the song before he got back, and I played it for him. He loved it. He said, I'm going to play it for Nancy. He played it for her. She, didn't, she hated the song. Oh, really? And luckily, she hated the song because, you know, I went in and recorded it with a, a, a girl who was in a band, my friend's band. And, and she was lazy and didn't learn the song properly. So everywhere we took the record, 
Love the song, hate the girl. Love the song, hate the girl. Last guy on my list. Love the song, hate the girl. But we're recording Dolly next week. Can I have the song for her? You bet. Oh, wow. <laughs> and did, so I got it and went to number one, as you said. Did Nancy not like it because she was so tired of being mentioned the same sentence as her dad? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? You know, I, I think it was more that her her friend probably wanted to publish it, you know, and that was not going to happen. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. That's <laughs> a li- I, I look at credits and I, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with uh, production credits for some reason. And I find that the, the politics must be crazy in the music industry behind the scenes, especially in pop music, because sometimes you see songs like, I think it was Jay-Z, Jill Scott song, Empire State of Mind, 12 writing credits. That's nuts. You know, you know how that happens is, it, 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 this never happened in the old days because the person who wrote the song was the writer, or two people or five people or three people that wrote the song were the writers. They went into the studio and then everybody else contributed what they contributed. That was called the arrangement. But now the guy that plays a bass note or two, he wants to be a writer today. And that's to me that's horribly unfair. Yeah. You know. Uh and that's why you see all those writers today on songs. Yeah, I don't like that. Um it bothers me like, because I'm a writer, and it's just like I couldn't imagine sh- having to share so much. <laughs> you know, yeah. especially if you write all the lyrics, and then small little changes are made, and all of a sudden four other people are crowding in on you, and you're like, "What the heck?" Yeah, that's that's uh, a that's a new thing in the last ten years or so. I, I hate it too. Yeah, um, I, I want to also uh, point out that another thing I didn't know when I did my deep dive is that you were in the movie The Doors. You were the Miami club promoter in The Doors. <laughs> I believe you got nailed with a mic that Jim Morrison threw. Yeah, in it, was, that it, was, movie. it was rubber, by the way. Oh, was it rubber? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So what's, what's funny about this movie, The Doors, is that um, we used to joke, because I was, I, it was 1991, I think it came out, and I was 15 or 16. And it came out, and the running joke among my friends was that um, Jim Morrison looked, or sorry, um, Val Kilmer looked more like Jim Morrison than Jim Morrison did. Yeah. You know, you know, he was so in character. I, I think he went home in character and he went so deep in, into it. Uh, I, you know, as as um, as Lawrence Olivier said to Dustin Hoffman, who who stayed up all night to, to do a, a scene one day and, and Olivier says, my boy he says, why don't you simply act the part? 
know, why go to all that trouble when you could just act? Method actors are funny like that, though. They, they are. They, they sure are. Yeah. I'm wondering, like, I mean, that, um, you know, there are there are some actors that that get under the skin of people for doing that. Was Val Kilmer like was at the time that, that was like the height of his career? I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. Was yeah. he? What, do you, was was he friendly or was he kind of like a, a unapproachable because of the method acting that he was he, he was he was Jim Morrison and he wasn't talking to anybody really no which was okay you know who cared you know yeah. I had no scenes directly with him so it didn't didn't affect me yeah but I remember the there was one scene you know Oliver Stone was the director and he and he I had a scene where I was supposed to yell at their manager who was played by the son of Ali McGraw and Richard Robert Evans, I think. And he said, he said, lay into this kid, lay into him. So can I curse? Yeah. Fuck yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So, so, so the scene starts and we're backstage and he's, and, and, and I'm the promoter. So I'm mad that, that, that Jim exposed himself, you know, in front of 10,000 people. And I'm, so I'm yelling at the kid and he, and I, and, and, and I, I got through all my lines and and uh, Oliver Stone didn't say cut. So I figured, well, I guess he wants me to keep going. So I kept going. I kept going. I, I'm brutalizing this kid emotionally. I mean, I literally made him cry. Oh, is that the good luck getting your fucking equipment? Is it that scene? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's probably another five minutes of me yelling at this poor kid. He was like in tears. I said, you little motherfucker. I Cut your fucking balls off, you little cocksucker! You know, I'm, I'm going. all of a sudden it's a mafia movie. That's great. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. a redneck mafia guy. So, <laughs> so afterwards, you know, Stone comes out to my trailer. He says, "Oh man, I, I didn't, I didn't want to go say cut because I was loving what you were doing, man. You were just killing this poor kid." He said, uh, "He said I'm going to use you again." Well, I'm still waiting for that phone call from <laughs> Oliver Stone. <laughs> you know, that's that's show business for you. He's he's um, a director that's um, supposed to be really actor friendly, like he, you know, like Scorsese was like that. Martin Scorsese. I, I talked to Paul Servino, God rest his soul. Um, I talked to Paul Servino. I think it was eight years ago. I was at an event and um, our two groups had dinner together. And then he sang <laughs> opera for it. He sang opera for us later, which was amazing. But um, yeah. But he, he was saying to me like, because of course I'm asking Goodfellas questions because. I love that movie. And, and he was like, Marty just lets you go. Sometimes he doesn't give you any lines. He's just like, hey, Joe Pesci, um, you're going to trick Ray Liotta into thinking that you're mad at him, but you're not. And it's about him calling you a clown. Go. And they don't actually, like, there's no lines. They just improv yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. That, I, I, that, yeah, there's a freedom to that, isn't there? Well, yeah. And my only experience with Scorsese was... Uh, uh, I, I auditioned for a movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. I remember that movie. And uh, I, I was going to be St. Peter. And, and, uh, uh, and he, 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 he dug what I was doing, you know. So he had me get together with several guys, other apostles. And I, he says, look, he says, I don't want you to do all that typical biblical movie speech. He said, I want you to talk like real guys. I said, you mean like like we're 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 we're, we're uh, Jesus's gang or something? He said, yeah, yeah, like that. And he had us he had us improv like you're saying, 
And so we're going, hey, JC, man, these motherfucking Romans, man, they want to they want to kill your ass, man. You know, you know, that kind yeah. of stuff. You're, all of a sudden, you're, everyone's from the Bronx now. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So uh, so we're going on like he's, he's loving it. He's loving it. Well, it turned out that the, that the financing fell through. And and they didn't he didn't end up making the movie for another five years with an entirely different cast. Oh yeah. But it was it was sure fun to to work out with him, you know. Yeah. Like that because I can only imagine how great it. And Pesci's a friend of mine, you know. Oh, is he really? Yeah, yeah. We go back. Have you guys ever played together? A lot of people would be surprised to find out that he's a really fucking amazing jazz singer. He's a great singer. Yeah. You know you know why where he gets that from too. No. You, you know, little Jimmy Scott was. Yeah. Great jazz singer. Yeah. Well, G- Pesci and Frankie Valley were from Newark, New Jersey. And 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 uh, Jimmy uh, uh, Jimmy's career was a heartbreakingly sad career. One of the greatest singers of all time. And they would go see Jimmy in the when they were kids. They go to these, you know, these ghetto clubs and where Jimmy's playing for like $2 a night, you know. And uh and and they both they both took a lot from Jimmy. You know, uh, I remember Frankie Valley told me. Uh, I said I said, what did you get from 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 listening to Jimmy Scott? Because Jimmy was a friend of mine too. Yeah. And he said, and Frankie said, he said he told me, he told me, sing as slow as you want, baby, because it's the band's job to follow you. <laughs> you know, that was That's great. Right. And 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 Joe and Pesci, man, when he, you know. He, you could almost mistake his voice for Jimmy Scott's voice. Yeah, Jimmy his ass off, man. That guy from uh, what's that group uh, financed an album uh, for Joe? Uh, what's the guy with the real high voice? Uh, Getty Lee. No, I don't know the guy, but <laughs> what the fuck his name? Uh, album band. And it's uh, some group, uh, probably the biggest group in the world. I can't remember the name. <laughs> At any rate, yeah, I don't see it. I can't really see it. Anyway, because his mother liked Joe's singing, uh, he financed a, a really expensive album for Pesci. Really? Yeah, whenever he comes to town, he always comes to see my band. He's... I did a big band album uh, a few years ago, and uh, and I do a version of uh, the old Louis Armstrong uh, song, uh, When It's Sleepy Time Down South. Yeah. And, he, and he likes the way I sing that, so he always requests it. It's 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 interesting because you kind of, you know, you you kind of just threw that name casually, because and I I said this at the beginning when we first um, jumped off here, but th- that behind the scenes, like you're you're like a fixture in people's minds, like legends dig you. There, there there's there's certain bands that are there's certain musicians that are like that. Um, the one that comes to mind for some reason is Rush. Rush, get, you either love or hate Rush if you're like consumer of music. But behind the scenes, every single musician I've ever talked to that's like really well known, hands down, Rush are the best musicians of anybody. And 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 it's weird because it's it's the understanding and the respect that your peers give you. I think is worth more than fans because they know what they're talking about. Yeah. So, do you often feel the same way? Because, because you yeah. have that same kind of vibe. No. I, yeah. It, it's it's what's known as a, a singer singer or a mm. guitar player's guitar player or you know, and they're the ones that 
Yeah, like some big star singer will say, you think I'm good? Well, you ought to hear this guy. Right. You know, that, and people say, who? <laughs> well, I was, when I was growing up, there was a guy that made one hit record. I was about 13 years old. His name was Jesse Belvin, B-E-L-V-I-N. He made a record called Good Night, My Love. And I just fell in love with that voice, you know. Uh, and and he died young, unfortunately, the car accident, him and his wife. And, uh, yeah, Jesse was like that. You know, I, I remember I was producing Lou Rawls. And, and, and we were talking about when he first came to L.A., he, he drove out from Chicago with Sam Cooke. Uh, they were friends from school. Yeah. And, and, he, and Lou said, he said, yeah, I hung around with a, with a clique. You know, it was me and Sam and Gene McDaniels and Johnny Guitar Watson and, you know, uh, Les McCann and all these guys and Jesse Bell. And I said, oh, Jesse Bell. And I said, Jesse's my favorite singer. He said, yeah. He said, you know, he said, we all... He said, Jesse was our leader. We all bowed to Jesse Belvin, even Sam, even Sam Cooke, you know? So that's how great Jesse was. But but he was a subtle singer. And I think that's one thing that I think, the, I call them civilians, you know, don't always get. You know, because Jesse would, it, it's, how do I explain this in layman's terms? It's harder. It takes more effort and more skill to make it sound easy. I was just thinking of that. The, the I mean, um, Aretha Franklin has a weird way of seeming effortless. Mm -hmm. Like she's nailing everything she does, and she does it with the same face as she would if she was like, "Can I get an order of ribs?" Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like she just has a way about her that seems so easy and and effortless. And yet, all those people who would be Aretha all those female singers who would be Aretha, who were trying to cop Aretha's shit, they make it sound hard. And they, and they, it's like those guitar players that wave all that long hair around, you know, while they're yeah. playing solo and play a million notes. And whereas, you know, somebody else might play a half as many notes and it'll be more musical than all the million notes the other guy's playing. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I'm wondering, though, is that the sort of... Because when I watched the... I don't know if you saw the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom. Oh, sure. My friend Mabel John was in that. When you watch a movie like that, is there was a... And again, I'm, I'm, I'm looking into your world, not from your world. So, But when I looked at that movie, I tried to look at it from a, you know, a discerning kind of point of view. And I, and I was left feeling two things. One is that there are so many talented people that are in the sort of uh, uh, just on the edge of the spotlight, not quite in it. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm wondering if it's because, uh, not, not because of their skill level, but because their presence isn't as easy and X factor as the people that are in the spotlight, or does the industry blow it sometimes? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of factors, I think. You know who Cecil B. DeMille, the great silent film director, was? I, I know of, the, but I, I, I couldn't yeah. speak eloquently about him. He was asked one time, Mr. DeMille, how would you define a star? How do you know a star? And he, and he thought for a second and he said, it's somebody who when they walk into frame or they walk onto a stage, you see their face, you see the way they walk, you hear their voice and you never forget them. Hmm. Now there are a lot of 
great singers. Let's, we're talking about singers now, I guess. Yeah. And why him and not him? Why her and not her? You recognize Ray Charles the second you hear him with two notes. Yeah. You know, you recognize Frank Sinatra. And, and so that, the public ultimately decides based on what? Based on that, that lingering memory of that person's voice. And maybe some who are, are, are great singers, uh, technically or, or whatever, or even emotionally, mm. um, may not have that recognizability factor that that the average Joe or Jane uh, needs to grasp onto that person. Yeah, it it can be a sad existence, right? Like, like I know a lot of I know a lot of people who um, really tried their best to to sort of make a career out of music. And, mm -hmm. and one thing after another, the, I mean, the entertainment industry is the number one. Uh, I think common thread throughout the entertainment industry is that it could end at any moment oh, yeah. um sometimes before it even get out gets off the ground and it makes me wonder then the people that have tasted successes i'm less interested in what it did for you when you were in the middle of that success like when at this moment on its second win with the family ties thing and it became a number one hit i'm sure that was awesome i'm kind of more interested if you remember writing the song and what was going on in your life when you wrote it Absolutely. Uh, it was a number of years before, 1977. I was living like any loser musician. I was living at my mother's house at 33 years old. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I was doing six nights a week local gigs with my band. And we, we played everything from, you know, rough and tumble mafia clubs to hippie clubs to polyester uh, yuppie clubs, everything. I just and want to point out for my listeners that there's no such thing as the mafia. Please go on, Billy. That's true. Uh, the alleged mafia. That's right. And uh, so we played, we were playing a, a, a upscale kind of club. Uh, and I'm look, I look out at the audience in, in the front table, not that close to the front because there was a dance floor. I see this beautiful girl. She's sitting with a guy, and from the body language, I could tell she was with him, but not with him. Mm. And then there was another couple at the table. They were definitely together. And I just was floored by her. And so I asked the waitress, I said, who is that? Oh, that's Nina. She, she used to be a waitress here. Oh my God, I'd love to meet her. She's beautiful. So the next time we played there, a few weeks later, maybe a month later, I, I get to meet her. And we started dating. And she told me about how she broke up with that guy and how crushed he was and how he was almost suicidal from, you know, being left, rejected. And so the next day I, I, at my mother's house, at my mother's piano, I, I wrote about two thirds of at this moment from his point of view as I perceived oh, it. Wow. And, uh, I, but I couldn't finish it, you know, and usually when that happens, I toss the song. Thank God yeah. I didn't yeah. I put it in, but I put it in the piano bench 
And a year later when she dumped me and broke my heart, I knew how that last verse would go. What do you think I would give at this moment? If you'd stay, I'd subtract 20 years from my life. I'd fall down on my knees, kiss the ground that you walk, and if I could just hold you again. And, and you know, years later when it became famous, I, I, then I started to try to analyze the song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I realized that that last verse, you would give something huge, huge, subtract 20 years from my life for something so small. Yeah. If I could just hold you again, that, 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 that distance between those two things is very dramatic. Um, and I think people always remember that, that last verse, it but that came from real life. Yeah. And, and, but uh, uh, first of all, I, what a great story. Um, because, and this is why I love asking or, or, or hearing, um, people like yourself talk about the sort of genesis of the song because I never would have guessed first of all that it was written a year apart with the two-thirds done and the last one the fact that Nina is such a heartbreaker that she could not only evoke emotion out of you when you broke up but you could see the emotion she was evoking out of her previous boyfriend is a tribute to Nina <laughs> and her just and her ability her descriptive qualities that she was able to describe that situation to me about and, him and her and and the but the best part about it is that I feel like it evoked the correct emotion in people, uh, and I'll just use myself as the example because it was a uh, it's it's a breakup, right? And how? It, it, and and how? And and so Simon, um, so this is me, this is me in grade five, and this is the girl that I had a crush on in grade five, and her name was Jeanette Bradley. And when I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't remember the context of how this serious couple, 10-year-olds, <laughs> how we broke up. But I know that it was something that troubled me to the point that I, I wanted to watch the Cosby show and Family Ties. It was a Thursday. And I wanted yeah. to just relax and take my mind off of it. And then your song comes on. And <laughs> I had to leave the room so that my parents didn't see me cry. And yeah, I remember being in the mirror. I could still hear the song playing um, from the television, and I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm bawling, and I'm like, "Why am I bawling?" And I remember thinking to myself, "It's because of this sad song." And then I I, I fell in love with that song, and um, I want to just bring in a surprise guest here. Um, it is that I was crying over in grade five, and her name is Jeanette Bradley. Jeanette. Hello, Jeanette. <laughs> Hello. You heartbreaker, you. Right? right? 37 years ago. <laughs> wow. Did wow, you? That's so did, cool. Did I ever tell you about this? No, I don't think I ever heard that story before today. Oh, that is man. crazy. So, and, and I have kept in touch throughout the years in a digital sense. We've seen each other, I think, twice since, like, high school or yeah, something like that. And, um, and yeah, so... Uh, what I find really like now I'm all tripped out because we're, we're, I'm sitting here on my podcast now with a girl that I was in love with when I was 10 and the man that made me cry over the girl that I was in love with when I was 10. And now we're squishing these, like, is the universe going to implode, Billy? Like, That's deep. Know. This is deep, man. This is the deep stuff. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It really is. Yeah. All we need is Nina. 
Yeah, that's right. Oh my God. Can you True call story. her? <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, when, when, um, when my memoir, Harlem to Hollywood came out, uh, one of the reviewers was a fellow from the Wall Street Journal and he had a great um, uh, research department behind him and he found, unfortunately, found her widower. She had died the year before the book came out. Oh, wow. uh, she had ended up eventually marrying well. Uh, and had two two sons, and and he was a brain surgeon, and she died from a brain thing, which is oh. sad irony. But uh, yeah, but it almost seems like fate was always following her, though. Then, in a sense, yeah, you know, yeah. She, so this would be, this would be my muse, Jeanette. If I wrote a song about us, how do you think it would go? Like, I mean, it's a, it would be a pretty crazy song. I think. It would be a pretty crazy song there, James. Yeah, man. <laughs> too. Well, well, you got you got to access those emotions, my brother. You know, it's it, it, it's this is this is still very weird for me. Do you have you had people come up to you, Billy, before and been like, your songs make made me cry? Told you a story about how your your song made them emotional. Is that well, common? Of course, it happens all the time to this day. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's not not, right not, not just that song, but other songs too. But mostly yeah. that. Song. Yeah. Why did you know, you... I had, we had a hit before uh, the first time around when At This Moment came out in 81. Mm. That was the follow-up to a song called I Can Take Care of Myself. Now, that was an up-tempo song with a very happy, jumpy melody, but a very dark lyric. It was, it was written, uh, I was a staff writer at Warner Brothers when I first came to L.A., and they had an office temp who came in one day and she hit on me. Not because I was this, you know, heartbreakingly handsome guy, but because she thought I could get her some cocaine. <laughs> and as soon as she found out that I don't do drugs, she turned and walked away. <laughs> Times have not changed. But then she hit on one of the, one of the a young executive guy from Warner Brothers and, uh, and he fell for it. Yeah. You know, and so I, I thought this was kind of humorous, but also kind of sad. So I wrote this. I can take care of myself uh, in his in what I perceived again as his voice. Oh, you know, you, you do this and you do that and you do this. And my friends all tell me what a rotten girl you are. But I can take care of myself. Yeah. My friends all tell me I not that I, I should think twice. I can take care of myself. You know, I don't need nobody's advice because you're so nice. Yeah. Now, people don't listen to the words, and, and, and that aggravates me sometimes. And, and I imagine even more so with you as a rapper. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I hate it. If anyone talks while I'm rapping, I stop and I look at them. Let's slap them. You just get that. Just lean over the stage and slap the shit out of them. That's right. <laughs> so at any rate, at any rate, I've had people come up to me and say, oh, I can take care of myself. It's such an uplifting song. Because the melody sounds uplifting. I say, you fools, to myself. I say that silently. I just say, hmm. But I said, don't you, don't you hear what my words? I go to all the trouble of writing these lyrics, these great stories, and you don't even fucking listen to them, bitch. You know? <laughs> it's not uplifting. <laughs> when you wrote at this moment, were you um, uh, really upset over Nina? Or was the oh. writing of the song enough therapy for you that it was fine uh, i lost 30 pounds of upset oh wow i, I, I was i it, it it drove me to therapy 
Completely. You know? Yeah, my mother said, you know, you, you know, dude, you're fucked up, man. Go see, go see the doctor. The doctor sent me to a therapist. And that means I, that you probably became emotional when you were rehearsing it. Well, I, I didn't, I never did it in person at the time. You know, I only wrote it on the piano. I played, sang it on the piano when I was writing it. Uh, I did make a demo of it, uh, which is what I sent to my old manager who was in L.A., because he called me up. <laughs> he was one of these guys that um, he was an incorrigible drunk, uh, not drunk, uh, gambler, degenerate gambler. And he'd, he'd make a lot of money, lose a lot of money, make a lot of money, lose a lot of money. And he, he, he had, in fact, he had been run out of New York because he owed money to the wrong people, the alleged mob. And even, even, uh, even our friend Jilly, you know, Frank Sinatra's friend Jilly couldn't help him. And they just said, look, the best I can do for you, you get out of town and don't ever come back to New York. So that's why he moved to L.A. So he called me up. He said, listen, I'm broke and I, I, uh, I need to make a deal. He said, send me, a, send me your latest songs. I'll see if I can get you a record deal. And, and so he was the one that got me. He couldn't get me a record deal, but he got me a publishing deal. Wow. Yeah. And well, one of the songs what desperation can do to ambition. Thank God for his de de desperation because that got me to L.A. And, uh, and so I played at this moment for the head of Warner Brothers Music. And I turned and, and in front of all of his, his staff. And I turned around after I finished the song, a dead silence. And, and he's got this guy got tears coming down his face. And it was the first time I thought. He was dating Jeanette. That's what happened. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> It was the first time I said to myself, maybe this song has something. You know, oh. I never there's, thought it, I didn't think it was there, commercial. There is a magic in that song. And, 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 and I've always, and there's so many things about it that are unique. That The fact that it has no chorus. The fact that, um, wh why did you choose the live version to release? That's something that I always was confused about. Like, was, you know, where did you record the live, or does it just sound live and there's a crowd mixed in? No, 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 it's real live. What, what happened was we, we had done a demo, I think with the band, of, of, of several songs, and we got no response from record companies. So the, finally we, we, we were offered, we, we played every, every Monday night at midnight, the worst night of the week, at this place, The Troubadour, which was a famous club out here in Los Angeles. Yep. And all these A&R guys would come. They'd be, I'd see them clapping their hands and stomping their feet and snapping their fingers, smiling. Nobody reached for their checkbook. Nobody wanted to sign us. And finally, after about a year, we finally got three offers in one week. Wow. And I chose this company. And, uh, and my manager at the time, he was, he was for all his, his flaws, his character flaws, he, he knew show business backwards and forwards. And he said, you know, something happens in the studio with you guys that just doesn't capture. He said, but you're, you're, you're the greatest live band I ever heard in my life. He said, Why don't we try making a live album? So the record company said, yeah, yeah, let's do it that way. So that's why we did it. And uh, that's why I did, a, I did a studio version later for a movie. Okay. They they wanted what what it was. They wanted to use the song in the movie, but you know, in the middle of a love scene, you can't have some guy. Yes, yeah, sing it, Billy. Sing yeah. it. 
you know, right. it, 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 it kind of takes away from the romance of the moment, you know. Have you done versions like that over the years live where it's like you and like a, an acoustic guitar or something like that? We did the, well, we did the one live version, uh, studio version rather, for the movie, mm. which, which I released on a little sell it yourself CD. Yeah. And, uh, and then when I did my big band version, it was suggested that I uh, do at this moment with, with a big band, big 18 okay. people. But uh, the, the live one is the one that, you know, everybody loves. It, it, the, thing, the thing about the band is, is it crossed every demographic line. It was on the pop charts, the country charts, the rhythm and blues charts, the adult charts. And, and, and it was young junior high school people made it their prom song. 65-year-old couples made it their song. It was it was one of those rare songs that that you that, that is not defined by any one demographic group it was like unchained melody you yeah know, like it's in that category yes you're right very good you know, and it, it had a double it had a second wind mm -hmm. you know came out and then a movie made it popular again ghost yeah. right so it is sort yeah. of like and there's not many songs like that there's only a handful of songs that that have that life cycle right you know? that's that's called luck of the draw, my friend. That's right. Um, listen, we have to split because uh, we're about f three minutes away from another show coming on. Um, before we go, Jeanette, will you go on a date with me now that Billy's here? Oh, you absolutely, better. right? Yeah, you know, it, it's, yeah. Only, it's only a nice dinner. Make, <laughs> him spend make him spend money on you. That's right, Billy. You tell her. You tell her, Billy. <laughs> you know, he's, look at him. He's a good-looking guy. That's right. he's, he's, still, he's young. He's a handsome guy, you know, and he's a and nice guy, smart. I know people who know Joe Pesci now. So there you right. go. go. Did you know, Billy, that I, 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 I plagiarized George Carlin any chance I get? Um, by t I've been telling people for a decade, uh, when, when, when I find out someone's religious and they talk about praying, I'm like, yeah, I pray to Joe Pesci, only Joe Pesci. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been saying that for so long that I almost feel like it's my joke, but I totally stole it from George Carlin. Does, does Joe Pesci know that George Carlin used to pray to him? I don't think so, but but, uh, I think but I used to pray to Megan Fox. We all did. I think even Jeanette did, didn't you, Jeanette? I mean, come on now. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But you know, see, if you've seen the recent pictures of her, she she made her lips get big. Oh, well, then I don't like her anymore. Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, I'm a Rosie Perez fan. I I need my girlfriends to be tough. Uh -huh. And have a voice that I can hear from three counties away. If they don't have those two things, then I don't think that's Rosie Perez. Isn't she on uh, uh, that that uh, that Showtime thing? Uh, Your Your Honor. Maybe. I, I think I, she. I, I think she plays a, a DA or something like that. I fell in love with her when she did uh, Do the Right Thing and uh, White Man Can't Jump. Those two movies were like, I love this one. Yeah, she was great in that. She's a good actress. She is. Um, Very New York. I love talking to you, and I would love to have you on again, um, and because I feel like we could talk for hours about um, about everything, and uh, I really and appreciate we'll, And we will, my friend. We will. Okay. I appreciate that. Billy Vera, thank you for joining us. Jeanette, you're going to stick around for a second. Thank We're going to catch up. Jeanette, nice to meet you, my dear. Nice to meet you, too. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Billy. Okay. Thanks for having me, man. No problem. Thanks for coming. Well, what do you think? Super fun. <laughs> He's awesome. Is it, I, 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 there, there must be a, like a German word for it. There has to be a word for this. Is there a word for this? You Which find part? the guy, well, the, the guy that give you, that evoked an emotion out of you when you were 10, 
for this girl and you end up having him your show 37 years later with the girl is there did i just invent something like maybe that is very possible it's more than synchronicity that's for sure yeah it's got to be something but i'm 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 kind of puppeteering it so it's not it's not as innocent as synchronicity i guess true 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 how you been pretty good you know absolutely you look great Oh, thanks very much. I can't believe you made me cry 37 years ago. What the fuck was that all about? Uh, I can't believe it either. <laughs> I don't even remember. I thought you were just busy flipping desks. <laughs> yeah, I did that, didn't I? Let's look at us one more time before we go because I think okay. it's hilarious. It's really, it's so good. I had to, I had to find it. Like, honestly, we look like siblings. Like, what's what? Oh, is it just gosh. the lighting that made our hair look identical? I don't know. <laughs> it must have been because yours was like quite red and mine was definitely more brown. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's this one. This one. I... So this is me looking like a Miami oh, yeah. Vice guy. And as far as I can remember, this is you, right? That Yeah, the, in the blue like, with the curly hair, just behind Chris. Oh, my God. Who's the one beside you then on your left? Marianne Conboy. Oh, my gosh. That's right. I think, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. White suits, so many white suits. No, it's great with the turtleneck. <laughs> you were a big fan of the turtleneck, I have to say. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck I was doing. You know, like <laughs> I, honestly, I I didn't even like look to anyone to try to like figure out fashion. I just was like, I don't know, this looks like something, and I'll put it on. Oh, fucking figure it out. <laughs> yeah, it matched my hair, which was awful. So it's a good time. Jeanette, thank you for um, filling this cyclical manufactured synchronicity project that I did today. I appreciate it, and um. Yeah, we'll 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 talk soon. Absolutely. Soon, and we'll visit. We'll visit sometimes. You're only two hours away, right? Yeah. True. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we're going out on a date, and we'll sing um, at this moment and cry together. Okay. Oh, wonderful! Sounds great. (laughs) Okay. Thanks. (laughs) We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Oh, everything about this show was rewarding. I don't even care that Billy Bear's audio was all. I don't care. That was fun. Um, he's a music legend and I really like the fact that I get to talk uh, with people from all walks of life. So thank you again to Billy Vera. Um, thank you for everyone that's been watching and listening and we'll see you tomorrow on casual Friday. And, uh, yeah, that's it for me. So we'll see you next time on black ball. Black ball. Black 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 ball. and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know? And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Hi, I'm Connie.
Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.